Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you that we come as a church family to worship you, to hear from you, to fellowship together, Lord. And Lord, today as we start this, uh, the Passion Week, Lord, we remember you, we celebrate you, and Lord, we want to recognize who you are and give you glory and honor, the honor and glory that you deserve, Lord. Please be with us today. May your Holy Spirit speak to us, teach us, encourage us, uplift us, strengthen our hearts, convict us, and we lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, have you ever spent some time looking for something, and you just know in your mind exactly what it looks like? You have the image of your, in your mind what you're looking for, right? But, uh, so you look for it, but the problem is you can't find it. Have you ever had that? You know exactly what you're looking for, the image in your mind, you know what it's supposed to look like, but when it comes to looking for it, you can't find it. You're searching and searching, and, and what should take you only like five seconds takes like five minutes to find something. I don't know if you're like that, and I could spend 10 minutes looking for something, and I can't find it. Wives, do you have husbands like that? Right? You go, <laughs> you go and you look, and Jamie will ask me, you know, Mike, what are you doing? I'm, like, I'm looking for something. It can't, I can't find it. It's not there. She's like, no, it's right there. It's like, no, I can't find it. It's not there. And I spend like 10 minutes looking for something, and she'll go, and within like five seconds, she finds it. It was right in front of my face. What happened? It's because in my mind, I had an image of what something looks like. You know, like those Where's Waldo books? We all know what Waldo looks like, and we look for the colored striped shirt, maybe the hat or the glasses, and we have the image in mind, and that's what we're looking for, right? So in my mind, I knew exactly what I'm looking for, but the problem is what what I train my eyes to think I'm seeing, I don't really see it. Even though it's right in front of my face, I couldn't find it. I don't know if you can relate to that. I, I think I, I did that like a couple of days ago. Well, we've been looking through the book of Mark, looking at Jesus' ministry and his journey to the cross. And since today is Palm Sunday, we're going to kind of fast forward a little bit, advance in the story, and then in two weeks we'll go back to Mark. But at this point in what we're going to look at in Jesus' ministry, in his time, we'll see that there are many different witnesses of Jesus. There are his closest followers, his disciples, his friends. Then we're going to see different crowds of people. There's going to be some people who've witnessed what he's done, and they're starting to believe that Jesus is more than just a teacher. Maybe he's the one that they've been waiting for, the Messiah. And then we're going to see there's another group of people, another crowd of people who they've witnessed what Jesus is doing and they're just curious. They just want to see more miracles. They want to see more signs. They're not quite ready to believe. And then we're going to see another group of people. I'll call them the skeptics, the critics, and the lunatics. 
Why I say lunatics, not literally they're crazy like a lunatic, but it's crazy to think about that there's a group of people who want to destroy and kill Jesus because of the work that he's doing. He's speaking the word of God. He's doing these, these things, this work of God, and yet there's people, there's a crowd of people who want to just destroy him, to kill him. These critics, these skeptics. But one thing that these groups of people all have in common is that they don't fully see and realize who Jesus is, even though he's right in front of their face, right before their eyes. They all have an image in their imagination of who the coming one should be, what what he should look like, what he should be doing. Yet even though they, they have this imagination, even though Jesus is right before their eyes, None of them even fully can comprehend or realize who Jesus is and what he came to do. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12. Turn to John chapter 12. And now all the buildup of what Jesus had been doing and all that Jesus taught will lead up to these final days And what we see is what we call the Passion Week. And we're going to see at this point in time that Jesus enters the arena. If you understand that picture, someone who's entering the battle. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, the center of the burner. If you cook, you know what that means, right? When you have a pan on the burner, On the outer parts of the pan is the least hot, but in the center is where it gets the hottest, right? Jesus is entering the center of the hot zone. He's entering a situation which people want to destroy him. We saw last week in Mark that the Pharisees and the Herodians began to talk together how they can destroy Jesus. Here are these two opposite groups of people who don't agree on anything, but yet they're going to come in agreement that they need to get rid of Jesus. And so Jesus is entering the heart of his critics, these skeptics, the people who want to destroy him. He's entering in the arena. Now at this point in time where we're going to pick up, Jesus had just raised his good friend Lazarus to life. He was dead four days, yet Jesus brought him back to life. Miracle of all miracles, right? And so people heard that Jesus did this, and he heard that he was in town, and so the people came over to see Jesus and came over to see Lazarus. We talked before about how Jesus, the word of Jesus went viral and how people, the word of Jesus spread So when the people in Jerusalem heard that Jesus was in Bethany and was with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they went all over there to see Jesus and to see Lazarus with their own eyes. We can all relate to something like that, right? When a phenomenon, something like that happens, we want to see for ourselves. So there's a group of people who came to see Jesus in person, came to see Lazarus in person. But of course, there are some people who still did not want to believe. And so they went back and reported it to the Pharisees of what had taken place. Let's pick it up in verse 12 of John chapter 12. It reads, On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, 
took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So what happens on the next day, there was a crowd of people who went to see Jesus. And when they heard that Jesus was entering Jerusalem, they came out to greet him with palm branches, waving it in the air. And they began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there's four, this, the, all four gospel accounts record this scene. Jesus entering Jerusalem. Now, why is this significant? Why is this such that even all four gospel accounts record this scene? It wasn't just a red carpet affair. But the nature of this entrance by Jesus into Jerusalem has a deep meaning that not even the witnesses... Not even the participants fully understood the magnitude, the significance of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Now, there's three very significant elements of this scene. We see the people laying down and waving palm branches. Then we see the people crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we see a third, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the foal, the young donkey. Why are these three things significant? First, we see the waving of the palm branches. In in, in the culture in that time, the waving of the palm branches often was accompanied by music and singing. It was a sign of homage to a victor. Picture the scene of a king who's just coming from victory, and he's entering his city on his white horse, right? And the people coming to greet this victorious king, they would wave these palm branches and sing this song of victory. This is the image that we can see. But the waving of the palm branches was also a regular part of the Feast of Tabernacles, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. What was that festival? What was that feast? It was a a recognizing of giving thanks to God for delivering the people from the wilderness. That, that 40 years in the wilderness, right? So that festival would take place, and during the celebration, they would wave these palm branches and sing a collection of psalms, a specific collection of psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. And these specific psalms were sung by the temple choir during the festival of tabernacles. And here the people quote a familiar passage of psalms that they would sing every feast of the tabernacles. Psalms 118, 25 through 26. O Lord, do save, or Hosanna, we beseech thee, O Lord. We beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So every time they, the people would sing this psalm, this phrase, Hosanna. This phrase, Hosanna, is the Hebrew exclamation saying, Save now. Please save. And that would be sung throughout the feast. So these people are waving these palm branches. And along with it, singing, Hosanna. 
Lord, save, save us. What's the third part here? Jesus comes in riding on a young donkey. Now, I don't know if you pay attention to this time of year. I don't know how many of you watch the award shows, but in Hollywood and the entertainment industry, this is like the award season, right? You have the Academy, Academy Awards, um, you know, the Grammys and things like that. And maybe what's more, had, gains more attention and more pageantry than the awards itself is the red carpet, right? I don't know if you all pay attention to that. There's a lot of hype about the red carpet because that's when all the celebrities make their appearance, right? And they want to make a good appearance. And so they find these crazy-looking outfits and dress trying to look glamorous, and their entrance is made a big deal, right? You would think that if Jesus, the victorious king, is coming, there will be this great pageantry. And yet, how does Jesus enter? He enters riding on a young donkey. Now, this isn't just random, though. This is fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. In Zechariah, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you see these three significant features of this scene of Jesus. These people who saw what Jesus did came and said, they got these palm branches and waving it in the air, singing Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus riding But this time, he's not riding like as a victorious king would on a white horse. He's riding on a donkey. The symbol of humility, a symbol of peace, and not military conquest. Significant. I think it would have caught the the eyes of the Roman government a little bit more if he came in riding on that white horse like a victorious king, the sign of a military conquest. But instead, Jesus comes in on a humble donkey, a symbol of peace coming into the city. Verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that were written of him, that they had done these things to him. So even the disciples, when Jesus was writing, and the people are waving the palm branches, they're singing, Hosanna! And he's riding on the donkey. Even the disciples didn't quite grasp the magnitude, the fulfillment of what was taking place. Even the people themselves probably didn't fully understand and realize the scene of what was taking place. It wasn't until afterwards the disciples thought, oh, that's what that meant. When Jesus was ascended and was glorified, they thought, oh, that's what was, what we remember. Remember when Jesus did this? That's what it must have meant. I'm sure the disciples had many of those things, many of those experiences. Hey, you remember when Jesus did this? This is what it meant. This is what he meant by saying these things. Verse 17, And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness 
For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So the witnesses, these groups of people who saw what Jesus did, raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw all the signs that he was doing. They came and they were bearing witness of him. But here were the Pharisees. They weren't looking in admiration or wonder, but with hardness of heart. Remember, we saw that last week in the passage in Mark. Jesus called them out of the hardness of heart. They would not believe, even though they were witnessing the work of God. And they were saying, they were fearing the people, they're starting to follow Jesus. Many looked on curious and in wonder, who is this Jesus? Who is this one that could even raise the dead? Yet they couldn't fully comprehend who Jesus was and what he was doing. None of them fully understood the significance of this scene as Jesus entering Jerusalem, except for one, Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one who understood what he was doing what he was fulfilling. Not even his closest friends could fully comprehend. Jesus knows what he's facing. He knows that he's not yet coming to his coronation as king. What's he going, what's he entering? He's approaching his execution. Think of that. The king is not coming to his coronation. He's not coming to his throne. He's coming to his execution. Why? Why? Verse 23, let's skip a few verses. Jesus answering the crowd, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 25, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here Jesus is forecasting the significance of what is to come. He's going to his execution. But notice what he calls it. He calls it. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's going to see the moment of the cross leading to his glory. The cross will not be defeat, but it is going to be ultimate victory. See, he lays out the purpose of the cross. The purpose is not just to provide one more miraculous work before it's over. That's not the purpose of the cross. The cross wasn't meant to be a trophy that sits on the shelf to say, ah, this happened at one point in time. What Jesus is laying out, what I am going to do is going to cause a reaction. Jesus' action causes a follow-up action for us and in us. What Jesus is about to do is going to affect your life change your life 
going forward. Look at what Jesus is laying out here, what he just said in that passage. He says, death produces fruit. My death will produce fruit. He who loves his life is going to lose it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Now that just seems kind of contrary to us. What does he mean by that? He who loves his life is going to lose it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. We'll get to that in a second. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Here, the purpose of the cross. See, for many, death signifies the end, finality, right? So many people were afraid of the virus, COVID virus, because they saw people were dying. And so many people, without the hope of eternity, sees it as as finality. That's the end of things. So when people look at death, they think it's final. But the change Jesus is going to usher in, death signifies life. For many, loss signifies mourning, right? Not mourning as in the sunrise, but mourning as in sadness. But the change Jesus is going to usher in, loss signifies gain. To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. To serve Jesus is to be honored by the Father. Think of that. To serve Christ is to be honored by the Father. Can you think of that glorious scene? Right? I don't know, some of you, as students, you, you uh, got some awards in the awards ceremony. Have you ever had those nights? You know, you got the notice, your parents got the notice that your child is receiving an award. And maybe you were notified, and you had this whole night, and they called the students up, and you're honored for whatever award or whatever certificate. And, you know, students are smiling big. They got the awards. Parents smiling even bigger, so proud of their kids, right? What a great night. Can you imagine being honored by the creator of the universe, our eternal Father, because you humbled yourself to serve him in this lifetime, and he said, I will honor you. That's going to make your certificates on the wall seem a little insignificant, right? But see, Jesus, whoever dies, whoever loves his life in this world, you want to love this life so much, you want to cling to it, you're not willing to let it go, not even for God. You're going to lose your life. But he says, if to extreme contrary, those who hate their life in this world, compared to Christ, you will gain your life. See, we think this world, is so, there's so much to hold on to, so much you're going to lose if you follow Christ. You're holding on so dearly, you, have, don't, you don't realize what you're losing out on. If you're willing to let go of that, you will gain eternal life. And he says, where I am, my servant will also be. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. 
that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Verse 36, we see Jesus will still charge the people. Even those who refuse to believe, he pleads with them, believe in me that you may belong to me. Before he goes and parts and he hides himself, he charges them, believe in me while you still can so that you may belong to me. Now, what does it mean here when John says that the Lord blinded the people's eyes so they could not see? What does it mean when he says that the Lord hardens their hearts so that they could not believe and be converted and healed? What does that mean? Well, John here quotes two passages from Isaiah. In verse 38, he quotes Isaiah 53. We're not going to go into Isaiah 53. That's, that's a, a heavy passage in itself. But Isaiah 53 is a chapter that describes the suffering servant. The one who's going to suffer for the iniquities of, of the people. So John evokes this image of the suffering servant here in verse 38. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The readers who had read this, who know the scriptures, who know this is the chapter of the suffering servant. He goes on, and then John quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, and verse 40. In this passage in Isaiah, God sends Isaiah to be a voice of judgment to the people of Israel. The Israelites, they have been adulterous. They've been following the the idols and the gods of the nations. They refuse to repent. So Isaiah is going to be the voice to the people. But God tells them, they will hear, but they won't hear. They will see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, but they, they will be hardened in heart. Isaiah would be a voice, but a voice that the people would not believe. But their hearts would be hardened to it. And God allowed their hearts to be hardened and be blinded that they may not see. If you know your Old Testament, what ends up happening to the people of Israel? They get sent into captivity. Sent into judgment. Why? so that they would understand the gravity of their sin and repent and come back to God. To come back to God. To be faithful to God once again. Stop following the idols of the world. That's the human condition, isn't it? Sometimes people have to experience the hardest situations and consequences for them to understand and realize, this is not what I want anymore. I need to come back to the Father. I always pray that my kids would never have to learn a lesson where they have to experience the depths, the lowest of lows for them to appreciate the Father. To realize I need to be faithful to God. 
And so John evokes this passage in Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they may see, or that they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. This may be troubling to hear for people. How is God blinding people's eyes and hardening hearts that they would not see? Notice he's ha- this is happening to people who have already blinded their eyes. They have already hardened their hearts. They refuse to believe in the Jesus that they see and hear with their own ears and see with their own eyes. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You ask, why was God hardening their hearts, blinding their eyes so they may not see? Notice, this is the narrative of the story, what takes place leading up to the cross. What series of events led Jesus to the cross? The religious leaders of the day refused to believe in Jesus. They did not believe who he was, threatened by who he was. And we're going to see Friday night false accusations of false accusations that led Jesus to be convicted falsely. Right? It led Jesus to the cross, their unbelief in Jesus. But Jesus didn't die just because of the unbelief of the Pharisees, or the scribes, or the elders, or the Sadducees. What led Jesus to the cross was our sin right? Our sin. Jesus came to die for our sin, the sin of the world. But look at this indictment. Many, even the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's not very unfamiliar to us today. So many people have heard the gospel, have seen God do work, but because they're so afraid today of public opinion, they're so afraid of being canceled. There's so many people who have careers, they're in the limelight, but they're so afraid of what's going to happen to them. They're not willing to commit. They're not willing to believe. And there were people, religious leaders in the day, they they wanted to believe in him, but they were afraid, what was going to happen to me? Can you imagine that tragedy? What a shame it would be. If you recognize in your heart there's a truth to Jesus, there's a truth to who he is and what he's doing, but I'm just afraid of what other people are going to think. I would rather follow people than follow God. I would rather have the approval of people on social media than to have those same people come at me. That's the world we're living in today, right? We want to make sure we're on the right side of the social issues in case people come at us. Think of us as hateful, intolerant, We're so concerned about that. And here we see this scene. Jesus coming in as king. Fulfilling the picture that was told 
through scriptures. And here's the crowd of people wanting to see him killed. There's the crowd of people, some of them not willing to fully commit to who he is. Jesus the king enters his city, but a city that would not embrace him. He entered his city, the king of kings, but he would not sit on his throne. Jesus the king came not to a throne, but to a cross. He will be enthroned before all the people, but first he will be crucified for all the people. That's heavy stuff. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, coming into the city, his city, but they're not embracing him. They're going to soon reject him. He's not going to be sitting on the throne. He's going to be hung upon a cross first for the sins of the world. We'll look at the moments leading up to the cross this Friday. So I encourage you all to, to be there with us on Good Friday. We'll see what led to the cross, what Jesus experienced for us, the significance of the cross. But I can't assume that we'll all be present. We'll all be there. And we can't assume that even tomorrow is promised to us. We kind of take reports of death very lightly sometimes now. But tomorrow is never promised to us. So what I want to leave us with today is that the cross demands a response. The people were faced, how will they respond to the king that is coming? What is your response to the cross, to the king coming in? I don't know, some of you, if you're waiting for some more proof, one more sign, one more miracle. No other miracle can ever happen that was greater than what he did. If you're looking for something that will make your life a little bit more at peace while living the same life like everybody else, you're going to be searching forever. Jesus says, look, this is what I came to do. Will you follow me? Will you serve me? Because I will be there. Where my servants are, I will be there. And they will one day be honored by the Father. That that is who came into Jerusalem. Friday we will see the message of the cross. I want to encourage all of us to be here and this week just reflect on what the Lord has done. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. I mentioned that tomorrow is not promised to us and the cross is more than just some event that happened in the past. It's not just something we can put on our shelf, hang on our wall, wear around our neck. But the cross demands a response. Will you believe in Christ and what he has done for you? And will you decide to follow him? Will you believe in him as your Lord and Savior?
to forgive you, cleanse you, redeem you, and give you hope. Lord, we thank you that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the people were right to wave those palm branches and sing Hosanna because you are the King that saves. And your journey to the cross is the means of our salvation. Hosanna. We thank you that you are the glorious king. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship.